Hello, and welcome to the River Audio Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We believe God has something unique to say to you, and our hope is that you feel His love stronger today than ever before. Enjoy the message. You ready for this word this morning? This is, this is not so much a sermon as it is a message, all right? Uh, I don't know if I want to start by talking a little or if I want to start by reading some verses. We'll read some verses. Go with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and then we're going to jump over to Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and then we're going to jump down to Acts 2 and 41. Here you can follow along on the screen. Acts 1 and 8. Jesus tells the disciples, by the way, Jesus is getting ready to ascend where he will be seated on the right hand of the Father. They have been with him for the last three years. He was crucified. He rose again. Now he's talking with them, and, uh, and then he's going to ascend. This is what he says. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Now I want you to notice the reason for the power. And you shall be witnesses. Somebody shout witnesses. witnesses. Well, you sound good. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, that's home, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now go to Acts 2 and 1. The fulfillment of what he just told them in Acts 1 and 8. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, somebody shout suddenly. Suddenly. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like fire and sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak, if I can say here, in different languages. As the Spirit gave them utterance. Now notice they're speaking in different languages. And now you get a little clue on this. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now this was now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and they were confounded because that every man heard them speaking in his own language. Now we'll go down to uh, verse 41. I'll give you the quick version of what happened in between. The apostles have the attention of all of these, and Peter stands up and he begins to preach about 
the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. He gives them the gospel. Here's what happens. Acts 2.41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Pray with me. Father, thank you for today. I need you so much. I am so aware perhaps today more than a long time that I absolutely can't do this without you. God, I believe you have placed a fire in my heart, but I don't rightly know how to communicate it. And I need your help so much. I'm trusting that you have called at this time for what you're wanting to send and that you'll just simply help me to yield to be the vessel of getting that through to other hearts. Open our ears, open our eyes, open our spirits to hear you, to recognize that it is you, and to receive your word and then to carry it. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Somebody say amen. amen. We have the last part here of Jesus' earthly ministry. He didn't start his ministry till he was 30 years old. And in three years, he traveled preaching the kingdom and healing the sick and raising the dead and raising up those to take that message and to spread it. And... Right before he leaves, he tells these that were closest to him. He says, you have to go to Jerusalem and wait. Before you do anything, wait. How many of us have gotten ourselves in trouble because we had something good to do, but we didn't get prepared? We didn't wait. So he tells the apostles to wait. And so the apostles, along with not just the 12, but many, there were about 120, that they gathered in the upper room and they prayed and fasted and sought God for about 10 days. Now on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, uh, oddly enough, they weren't still in the upper room. 
They were in the temple when this happened. And so we've gotten that confused at times, but that doesn't matter. But Jesus told them, go and wait, and the promise will come. You will be filled with the Holy Ghost to be witnesses, to be witnesses. My, how we have dumbed down and denigrated the power of the Holy Spirit and the purpose of the Holy Spirit in our churches, especially in our modern Pentecostal churches. And we have cheapened the power of the Holy Spirit to a feeling. And we have, uh, in vain, we have, we have wasted the Word of God and made this power of the Holy Spirit to be about Christians just feeling something over and over and over again and acting crazy in church. And then the goal is basically just to repeat that a million times to, to what end? To what end? And I don't think we understand that when Jesus called these to spread the gospel, the danger they were in to stand against that government and that society and those religious traditions and to declare publicly, your way is wrong, but Jesus is right. How much courage would it take for a young person to stand up in their public school on any given day and say, fellow classmates, student body, you may not know, but you are sinners. But God loves you. And Jesus is his son, and he sent him, and he died on the cross for you. And he rose again, and if you'll put faith in him, you'll be forgiven, you'll be born again, you'll be saved, and you can serve him. wonder how many kids want to walk into their school and do that. wonder how many grown-ups want to walk into their workplace and on their lunch hour stand and do that. Now, I can tell you, if you did, probably nobody would kill you. Probably wouldn't even beat you up. You would be made fun of. And for us, the body of Christ in America, that's enough to claim persecution. But these, these did that very thing. Going out into the community and standing up and proclaiming the gospel and many were killed for it. If Jesus had not supplied power, 
not power to dance with everyone at an altar that agrees with you. Listen, I'm not telling you not to. I'm not coming against I'm not coming against how we worship God in the church with fellow believers. I'm not speaking against that. I don't need the courage of the Holy Spirit. I don't need the boldness and the fearlessness of the Holy Spirit to shout amen with a room full of believers that already agree with me. But to go out there and to stand in the face of the society that we live in, a society of toleration, where really toleration means we tolerate everything but you who believe in Jesus. To go out there and proclaim the truth where we could be ridiculed, where we could be persecuted, and in some instances taken to jail. We had an administration four years ago that helped to remove a lot of that fear. The administration that we have now is a lot like the administration that was before that one that caused a lot of the fear that ministers were being put in jail in the United States of America for what they were preaching. And much of the country would love to go that direction again. The power of the Holy Spirit is that you can stand in the face of what is against you and say, I won't go back on what I said about Jesus because no matter what, he's the son of God. And no matter what, he went to a cross. And no matter what, he got up again. And no matter what, there's no salvation given under any other name under heaven but the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's why you need the power of the Holy Ghost. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of holiness and to proclaim the truth in the face of threats and adversity. Jesus said, the Holy Ghost will come upon you because you're going to be witnesses for me. Do you hear me, church? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, here were hungry believers gathered in one place and crying out to God, not for what they wanted to happen, not for what they had concocted, not for saying, well, I hope this happens at church today. But they had gathered together to say, God, whatever it is that you are wanting to send, whatever this power is and whatever it means, 
Whatever we need to stand up in the day and the time we live in and to proclaim your gospel no matter, somebody say no matter what. God send that. God send that. And on the day of Pentecost, it came. He came. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit came and he filled all that were present. Perhaps in the excitement, maybe there was some shouting. Probably was. That's how humans respond to these sorts of things. We go to a football game, we get excited, we shout. If our kids make us mad, we shout. There probably was shouting going on. Shout. A lot of the things that we have called the Holy Ghost are not the Holy Ghost. They're just the human response to feeling something. Nothing wrong with it at all. Nothing wrong with it at all. It's a God-given emotion, and it ought to be used. And if we're going to use it, we ought to use it for Jesus. Run all over the house. Shout all over the house. Wave white hankies all over the house. Dance and jump and run around all over the house. Bless the Lord. Did they have any of this? Maybe they did. But I can tell you what I know they did do. The moment they got full, they stood up. And they began to proclaim the gospel to people that were gathered there from all over the world. And the most appropriate gift was speaking in a tongue they hadn't known before. Because there were people there from different tongues from all over the world. Why tongues? Well, on that day it was needed for that at that time because there were people there that didn't know their language. God said, I need all these people. They're all here. I'll have them say the same thing in everybody's language. And now we have dumbed down the precious gift of speaking in tongues. Oh, missing the whole point. And most of the Christians I hear aren't speaking in tongues anyway. They're just saying some nonsense sound they heard somebody else say. And, and they're not, thank you. My amen corner. And, and they're not taking that that they experience at church that they claim is the Holy Spirit. It's not causing them to go out and proclaim the gospel to anybody. Are you here? I can't see because the lights. I don't know if you're here or not. I only know if you shout. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. In that true encounter, whew, mm, that's what I do when I feel him. <laughs> you don't have to do that, but that's what I do. <laughs> that true encounter that exploded when a group of hungry believers gathered, it then spread like fire and went all over the known habitable land. Revival. Everywhere, everybody that had been in that meeting could not get past what had happened. It was in them. 
So everywhere they went, they talked about it, and then it would happen. And people got saved. And those people got filled with joy, and they couldn't contain it, and they'd go somewhere else, and they'd tell what, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. They would tell somebody else what God had done for them, and they would get saved. Revival. Somebody say revival. Revival. When we say revival, what we think is meant by that word revival is that a guest speaker comes from another town, and uh, you said a week, good luck in 2023. Now, I am just old enough to maybe have caught a glimpse. They used to schedule them for two weeks. That's what you scheduled revival for. Yeah. Okay. You're a little older than I am. Three weeks. We'll go with your thing. Now, growing up, we mostly saw you had a week. When your pastor would announce it real big on Sunday morning, it would start Sunday night, it would go through Friday night. And basically, revival meant that a guest speaker that was louder than your pastor, which would be hard to find. A guest speaker which was louder than your pastor and a music minister that had been listening to newer tapes than your music minister had been listening to would come for seven nights, six nights, seven nights, and you could behave slightly wilder, <laughs> but were expected to go back to normal on next Sunday morning. Come on, somebody. Unless you were an AG kid or a Church of God kid, and then you could act crazy pretty much all the time. But that was revival. We had a revival. We are going to have a revival. Revival is scheduled for the second week of September. Every year we have revival. We always have our spring revival. First week of April, we have spring revival. That's not a revival. I'm not telling you not to have meetings. I'm not telling you not to bring in a guest speaker. I'm not, I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is that you don't pick when God sends revival. Revival is heaven sent. And you never know when it's going to show up. But it's always like this. God knows what he wants to do. And God finds a people. God doesn't do anything that he doesn't do it through people. Everything God does, he does it through human beings. Kind of like the devil. The devil does what he does through human beings too. You know them. God will find a people. I think God even strategically picks a place. And God looks for hungry hearts that are willing to gather in his name and seek him 
not for what they can get or feel, but they seek him for no other reason but that they want God to use them in the time that they have on the earth. And that God would do whatever he needs to do in them. That they would have the equipment to go to a lost and dying world and stand up and proclaim this gospel. That there's no salvation outside of Jesus. And God picks that hungry people and he lands right in the middle of them and something happens something happens out of the norm something happens that's not church as usual and the people experience God and they can't get past it changes them and generally people hear about it and they begin to be drawn to it from different places and when they get there they find it and the fire touches them and it begins to spread and that group impacts an entire nation or the world. God is about to light someone's heart on fire today like your heart has never been lit on fire before. I wish I had a different term to use than the one I'm getting ready to use because it's used all the time. But I'm praying that the Holy Spirit says it to you when I say it, and you'll hear it different. And it is this. It is not an accident that you are here on this day. It is not by chance that this day, why in the world did you come to the River Worship Center on this day? Why this day? Today, what will happen in someone's heart, it won't be everybody. It's never everybody because not everybody's on the same page. So I did not come to share this word with all of you. I didn't come to tell everyone. I am here sharing this for someone. This that I'm going to say is going to wreck somebody's plans. 
And everything you thought you wanted to do and were going to do in your life, it's going to change. And today you are going to lose your mind in place of one word that you'll never be able to get past. And you're going to be consumed with revival. Throughout the scripture, those that had experienced God would go and tell someone else, and God would use them to carry the fire, and there would be another explosion of the gospel. And it's never stopped. Go with me to the year 1800. 1800. The United States was in its infancy, not quite 25 years old. The total population of the entire country was less than 6 million. Today, there are over 334 million, to give you a little scale. Churches were few, very few, and very far between. The moral standing of the country in 1800 was that it was filled with alcoholism and sexual promiscuity. There were more brothels, that means whorehouse, than churches. And the status quo is that most people didn't have much regard for religion. 1800. Genuine Christian believers were in the minority. And they were disheartened at the godless condition of their nation and the lack of the fear of the Lord. Because of the long distances, most believers could not meet with a large group each week for church services. Mostly the way it worked is that circuit preachers. Do we have any old Methodists here today by chance? Circuit preachers on horseback would go to different areas hoping to offer worship meetings at least once every month or so so that believers could meet Halfway regularly. I hope the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart right now what he's doing in mine. I look at this on paper and I've been, I have had butterflies for three days. I've had butterflies for this service like I have not had for years. And I look at what I've got here on my notes and I think, this doesn't sound like anything. God, I'm going to stand up there and say this, but that's what I'm going to do. Circuit riders would go. So believers could gather. Now, many of these scattered believers 
Communion was very, very important to these believers, as really it should be to us. Many of these scattered believers would try to get together for a communion service. It's headed up usually by Presbyterians and Methodists, and uh, there would uh, commonly there would be Baptists there. There's not a time in history you can get away from the Baptists. There are more Baptists in the world than people. <laughs> and I am one. They would try to get together for a communion service, taking the Lord's Supper together several times per year. And most had to travel and camp in order to make this happen. They wanted to go to church so bad and take communion with other believers so bad. Do you know what it took to travel a few miles in that time? 10, 20, 30 miles? Gather up your kids and gather up your stuff and load it onto the wagons and then go where there are no roads. They were hungry. One such meeting took place in the year 1800 in Logan County, Kentucky at the Red River Meeting House under the direction of Minister James McGreedy. Everything started out pretty ordinary, pretty quiet, pretty normal. But as he preached in this little cabin building, something happened. Something happened. They began to sense the presence of God in the very room in a way that none of them were familiar with. As they heard from the preacher about their sin and about how to be saved, as they thought about their sin and the condition of their souls, they began to grow weak in their physical bodies that some could not even stand. And down to their knees they went, praying and asking God for salvation. It was nothing cute that happened where a famous preacher touched them and they flopped and rolled. It certainly wasn't something they were seeking after or trying to make happen. No, it wasn't even on their mind and in the conviction of their sin. Many found themselves on the ground, on their knees, on their face, on their back, crying out to God. For salvation. People left from that meeting, the fire having been lit, and we see where several places that they went, you would see little pockets of this happening, different places. But there was one man who had attended one of the Red River meetings. One Pastor Barton Stone. If you're a student of revival, you'll know the name Barton Stone. He was a pastor in Paris, Kentucky at the Cane Ridge Church. And he was so moved by what he experienced in the Red River meeting 
begin to pray that God would move like this everywhere. Decided to have one of their big communions. He was a Presbyterian. He decided to have one of their big communions. They would open it up for people to come from everywhere like they did. And in their little meeting house, which you can still go and visit today, and if you want to, you can go with me because I'm going to. The building would hold, I don't know if it was 25 or 50 people. It wasn't very much. It was less than 100, we'll say. And Barton Stone, he had a feeling inside of him. He thought they were going to have a big turnout. He thought there might be more than 100. Now, you've got to consider what kind of big thinking that is. <laughs> that in that time, how far apart people lived and how many even lived anywhere, what it would take <laughs> for 100 people from all over to pack up with their families and go there. But he thought there were going to be more than 100. He thought there might be two. So he prepared a platform outside. And a covering over the platform. Now, the communion would usually last about three days. Oftentimes, it would be on like a Saturday, Sunday, Monday, or whatever worked for them. So on Saturday, they had a full house. It rained. But it was enough that they could fit them inside. But it was full and hard to get them in there, and he was excited. And everybody was excited to see that many people together, fellow believers. And they had their communion service, their first communion service out of the three-day get-together. And it was pretty uneventful, but good, but good. The next day, a bunch more people showed up, like way over 100 And Pastor Stone was excited, and they would move the meeting outside like he thought they would have to. This had to be a great feeling. He stood on the platform, and he preached. And there were several other ministers there, Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists. And people kept coming. And pretty soon, over a 1,000 people, summer had come, they didn't have a sound system. And Pastor Stone was so excited, but he knew not everybody could hear him. And not caring about denominational titles, but only caring about the gospel and these precious ones that had shown up. And you have to understand that many people, even churchgoers, didn't know anything about being born again. Uh, everything was very young. They had, you know, everybody had left England. It had come out of Catholicism and the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and they, they knew about religion, but nobody knew that you could be saved. So people would come for communion and then hear the gospel for the first time, where the gospel was even being preached. Many were not preaching the gospel. They just took communion and talked about rules and religion, and that was that. 
Pastor Barton, he grabbed up the ministers and he said, men, he said, go anywhere you want throughout the crowd. He said, and gather a group around you and preach. Now, these men at Cane Ridge, they only had one message. And it was a message that had come out of the Reformation from Martin Luther and been passed down now since the 1600s, which was salvation by faith, that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. So the ministers begin to preach. The eyewitness accounts of the revival said it was beautiful because there was never a point where there was chaos, even though so many people were preaching at one time. They said it was like God had beautifully orchestrated this thing. But then, people kept coming. There was one minister, and he was preaching the gospel. And in the little crowd around him, there were two young girls. And as he preached... The two girls dropped to the ground, and the mother was terrified, wondering why they had fainted. And she tried to revive them, and she couldn't. She was scared. After about an hour, one little girl cried out, God, have mercy on me. And then she right back out. And after a while longer, she began to cry, Jesus, precious Jesus. And then the little girl jumped up to her feet. And in 1800, a girl, a little girl, begin to preach the gospel of salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more people begin to gather around the little girl. Grown men begin to tremble at the word they had heard and give their lives to Jesus. And many begin to drop, weak. One man began to mock he told his wife, if anything happens, you have to catch me. Shortly after he said it, he started to feel something. And he couldn't stand it. And he began to listen to the words of the little girl. And he began to tremble. And he couldn't take the conviction. And so he decided to get away from it. So he took off. He took off running out through the field. And he ran into the woods. And he ran out into the woods. And he got just a little ways into the woods. And suddenly he was struck to the ground by an invisible force. And woke up giving his life to Jesus. And went back to tell everybody. Word began to spread. And the people kept coming. And it grew to 5,000 into eight, into ten, into fifteen in eighteen hundred. And the final account shows everyone agreeing that there were more than twenty thousand, some saying twenty five thousand that came to the Cane Ridge revival in Paris, Kentucky in eighteen oh one. 
What happened next is why it's now in American history books. Because when you study religion, even from a secular point of view, American history says that this meeting is the starting place of every church and everything we know in Christianity in the United States today. That those people that attended Cane Ridge could not get past the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and how they had experienced him in a real way and they went everywhere. It's mostly Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterians that talk about the great Cane Ridge revival. But everything we see today goes back to one Pastor Barton Stone getting hungry and going to hear one Pastor James McGreedy <laughs> who had listened to, I mean, how far you want me to go? And a hungry people came together and it turned the nation toward God. The conditions that we look around and we see in our nation today that cause us to say, well, we can never have that again, in fact, are the very criteria that every time in history God chose somebody in that place to raise them up to turn the country around. There is hope for the United States of America. There is hope for Washington, D.C. There is hope for the church of Jesus Christ. There is hope for the gospel, and it's still a blood-stained cross. Can you give God some praise. I'm talking about revival. 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 Revive us again. Fill our hearts with thy love. Rekindle each soul with a fire from above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. You have to understand it goes back a lot further than Cane Ridge. Hope you brought snacks today. You see, in England, there was a great moving of the Holy Spirit had been experienced. If anybody's ever heard of John Wesley... It's about a million colleges named after him and churches and hymnals and such. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. And he was the greatest central figure of the largest revival in church history since the day of Pentecost, even until now. A revival which took place in the 1730s and 40s. Also named with him was his brother Charles, who wrote thousands of the hymns that we sing today, maybe some that we sang this morning, as well as George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, which was known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
It was in 1735 that John Wesley, a great minister, had an extraordinary life-changing experience with the Lord that lit the fire of revival that would sweep Great Britain and the 13 U.S. colonies. He was on his way from England to Georgia to pastor a church as part of a two-year missionary trip. On the boat ride, the weather became turbulent and threatened to destroy the vessel that they were on. Also on the ship was a group of Moravian missionaries. When the weather got bad and the tiny ship was tossed, if not for the courage of the fearless crew, <laughs> the minnow would be lost. The ship struck shore. <laughs> I'm sorry. As the weather became increasingly dangerous and did threaten the ship and the lives of all that were aboard, John Wesley was terrified, trembling. But the Moravian missionaries never seemed phased by the probability of their demise. This group of missionaries, they never stopped talking and cutting up and singing hymns of praise joyfully. They continued to sing. John Wesley was perplexed, and he asked them the reason for their relaxation. And the leader of that group said to him, Have you not faith in Christ? He replied that he did. But at that moment later said he realized his religion was in vain. They spoke to him of something called the new birth. To be born again and actually know God for yourself. It was from this questioning inside of him that he was truly transformed by the presence and power of God. And it exploded into what you and I now call the Great Awakening. This was the same fire that ultimately exploded through a line of testimonies, witnesses, and ministers down to Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Well, you, you feel kind of tough when you say that. Cane Ridge, Kentucky. I mean, you really feel churchy when you say that. And launched what most consider in American history the second great awakening. The second great awakening. A lot of people have studied these great revivals 
and have become moved and inspired and found that fire. And many have traveled to the places where these things have happened, which I will. Almost thinking maybe somehow there's some residual stuff left, you know? My wife thinks I'm crazy for those kind of things, but I'm kind of one of them kind of do, you know? Like if I go to Cane Ridge, maybe I can find a little anointing hiding around a you know, pew or something. But people have always traveled to these spots to study the lives of these great revivalists and to see where they lived and to see where they preached in hopes of connecting with it somehow. Fast forward to 1940. Professor J. Edwin Orr of Wheaton University, Christian school, had been teaching about the great revivals to his students. And of course, they would cover Cane Ridge. They would cover the Great Awakening and the Reformation. And he led a group of theology students to England where they visited sites of the great revivals. One of their stops was the Epworth Rectory where John Wesley had lived. He was born in that area. The rectory now serves as a Methodist museum, but it was formerly the home of John Wesley, the famous reformer. As a man of prayer, Wesley had interceded for revival to sweep through England and spread to America, which we just read how it did. God heard him. As they walked through the house with the students, Professor Dr. Orr, he pointed out two worn places on the carpet next to Wesley's bed, explaining that Wesley had knelt there for hours every day crying out for revival. Every day he got on his knees and asked that revival would spread throughout England and go to America. So much that he wore out the carpet. History tells us exactly what happened. Heaven broke in and revival broke out. As the tour concluded for those students, and they all went out and loaded back on the bus, Professor Orr wanted to count the young men and make sure everybody was there, but he noticed one was missing. He went back to the house to look through the house and see if he could find the missing student. He eventually located them in John Wesley's bedroom. And they were kneeling on the worn impressions where Wesley had prayed fervently for revival. And as Dr. Orr approached the room, he heard the student crying, Do it again, Lord. Do it again. And would you do it again with me? He put his hand on the young man's shoulder and said, Son, it's time to leave. 
Everyone's on the bus. The student slowly rose. And then that young student, Billy Graham, joined the rest of the class. And through him, God did it again. God did it again. It would seem that every 50 to 100 years that the Holy Spirit visits again. I know he's in us. But brings about tremendous revival through even a small group of hungry people. Usually starting with one or two. And it spreads to the nation. And it spreads to the world. And with many scattered revival fires exploding everywhere in between. People go every year to Cane Ridge, and while they're there, they pray. And they say, do it again. And they usually say, and make it like Cane Ridge. Do it again. <laughs> and make it like Cane Ridge. Do it again. <laughs> make it like the Great Awakening. Do it again. Do it again. Do it again and make it like John Wesley. Do it again and make it like Whitfield. Do it again and make it like Spurgeon. Do it again and make it like Barton Stone. Do it again and make it like Billy Graham. God, would you do it again? And if you see so fit... Would you do it in me? Would you do it here? Would you do it with this little group of people, no-name people, in a no-name town? God, it only seems perfect to me to do it right in the middle of the United States. It only seems perfect to do it right here. God, do it again. I wish I had something else to tell you. I wish I had a cute ending. I wish I had a nice homiletical way to wrap this sermon up. But for about three months now, I'm just consumed with do it again. Do it again. I wake up in the middle of the night and instead of trying to go back to sleep, I just read everything I already read about Cane Ridge and the Great Awakening and the Reformation. And I just lay there 
and say, God, please do it again. God, it's not too late for America. God, it's not too bad. God, it's not worse than Sodom. It's not worse than Gomorrah. God, it's not worse than it was in the days of Noah. God, it's not worse. God, do you remember when you were going to destroy Israel, but one man, Moses, went up on the mountain and said, God, don't do it. God, remember your covenant. God said, okay. I don't want anything in my life more than I want to see revival while I'm here and to in some way be part of it. To be one of those voices that says, kill me if you have to. But Jesus is the Son of God, and there is no salvation outside of him. God is so big. God can do anything. And I want him to do it through us. Thanks again for listening to the River Audio Podcast. We hope that these weekly sermons are an encouragement to your life. Make sure to stay connected with us throughout the week online at theriverworshipcenter.org and on Facebook and Instagram at The River.